You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will discuss the boy in the box. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I'm so glad to be here with you all today. This week has been really busy for me. Well, not really for me. (laughs) More my husband. It's been really busy for my husband. Uh, We have a little half bathroom off of our laundry room, and last May, so in 2020, we gutted it, we took everything out of it, and since then not much work has been done to it until I dun 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 volunteered my home for a baby shower coming up this very Saturday. So in like six days and now Brian is trying to get it all done in time scrambling. Uh, Brian actually works best when there are rushed deadlines. So, so far he's been doing pretty well. Um, he tiled our floor this past weekend and it looks really great. Um, he's going to grout it today. And after that, from what he's told me anyway, it should go pretty quickly from there. Uh, there's still shiplap to put in. There's wallpaper to put up, um, toilet and sink installation, baseboards, and all of the cosmetic and frou-frou stuff like lighting and decor. I am overwhelmed just talking about it and I'm even, and I'm not even the one doing it. So, um, but I'm sure he's going to get it done. Yeah. I'm sure he's going to get it done. Um, like I said, he works really well under pressure and he likes to get things done himself. So I know it's going to look great in the end. I just got to have a little faith. (laughs) Um, thank you all for taking the polls last week. Um, more people got the answers right than wrong. So that means a lot of you listened to the latest episode and took a lot away from the episodes. Those statistics are startling. They're bananas. I can't get over it. And it seems like all of you guys couldn't either. If you have no idea, zilch idea, what I'm talking about, then head on over to the Instagram at mystery still unsolved. After a case, I will normally post polls in the stories to just kind of gauge what you guys thought, put some feelers out there. Um, I also post pictures and videos related to the cases that we solve, or that not that we solve, I wish, that we cover each week. If Instagram isn't your scene, that's totally cool. I appreciate that. I respect it. I can admire somebody who enjoys living off the grid. Um, I also have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can download all of my episodes for your ears enjoyment. So what are you waiting for? Go over there and start binging. Today we will be covering a case that I first learned about from an interesting source. Not that it was an unlikely source. Uh, this television program is notorious for using real cases to inspire their episodes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm about to tell you. So when I was in high school and college, I was obsessed with a show. Who starred? Shamar Moore. Do you know what show I'm talking about? If you know what show I'm talking about, we are officially BFFs. Are you thinking criminal minds? 
We are soulmates. <laughs> I lived with my grandma for a little bit in college, and I even got my grandma hooked onto it. Every Monday night when I'd come home from school, she'd be in our living room on the couch with our drinks and snacks ready to watch a new episode. In one episode, there is a boy in a box who is discovered near a fall festival, fall carnival thing. And I wondered if that was based on anything that really happened because Criminal Minds does that a lot. So I gave it a goog and now here we are. On February 25th, 1957, the body of a boy was found in a box at an illegal dumping ground near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After an autopsy was conducted, it was found that the boy was most likely somewhere between the ages of four and six. He weighed 30 pounds and stood three foot three inches tall. The boy was found without any clothing, but he was carefully wrapped in a blanket. The boy's hair had been recently trimmed and his body cleansed. For me, this indicates some type of remorse. But let's continue. The boy had several small scars on his chin, groin, and ankle, which might indicate that he had recently undergone surgery sometime before his death. Not like immediately before his death, but sometime a little bit prior. The actual cause of death, however, was blunt force trauma to the head. The body of the boy was first found by a young man in his late teens who had just been kind of like, I mean, he's a teenager. He's just like hanging out in an abandoned lot because he's weird. Um, after making the discovery, he waited a full day to call the police. And they make it seem from the articles that I read that this is like really wild, but I mean, he was a teenager. Teenagers are dumb. They see something super grotesque and they don't know how to process it. They don't know what to do. Um, he's probably traumatized. And after, you know, maybe some time of cooling off and trying to process what he saw, he did eventually tip off the police. So I'm going to give him a pass, even though I'm still not too happy about it. And that's not how I would have handled the situation. I'll give him a pass because he was a teenager and their their brains aren't even fully developed yet. So I'll give him a pass. Who I won't give a pass to is the second man who actually saw this body before the teenager boy. And he had actually found this body like a week before the teenage boy. And he was like in his 40s and 50s. And he didn't say anything. You, sir probably not even alive anymore, but you do not get a pass from me because you were old enough to know what to do. But this man claims that he found the boy's body and he didn't tell police because he simply did not want to get involved. And so because of that, I have some words. <laughs> uh, guys, the world we live in is scary. I don't want to live in a world where people find dead bodies of children and don't say anything for weeks because it's none of my business. That is somebody's child. Somebody wants to know where their child is. And because you don't want to get involved, they have to go even more nights and more days without knowing. You, sir, and anyone who thinks like you can kindly turn approximately 180 degrees and F off. End of rant. With it being February on the East Coast and the delay and the boy's body being reported, it was almost impossible for the ME to determine the precise time and date 
of death accurately. In hopes of finding out the boy's identity, they reached out to all of the police departments in the surrounding area to see if they knew or had heard of any young boys who had been reported missing. Visitors from 10 different states came to the morgue in an attempt to ID the body, but those visits all went without resolution. No one knew the boy in the box. Police even sent out 400,000 flyers all over the country. They didn't even just focus on the Northeast region. They sent them everywhere. But this also led nowhere. The police compared the child's footprints to footprints from local hospitals, hoping that maybe they could find a match. They took fingerprints of the boy and found that no records existed which could lead them to his identity. With the boy himself not giving investigators much to go off on, they decided to focus their efforts on some other clues that had been gathered. So let's go over a couple of those clues now. First is obviously the box the boy was found in itself. The box contained a serial number on it, which was, which they were able to pinpoint where that box had come from, which was a J.C. Penney's located about 15 miles away from the dumping ground. Creepily enough, the box had previously contained a bassinet. Only 12 of these boxes had been shipped. However, all of the purchases were made in cash because, you know, it's the 50s, and only eight of those 12 reached out to the Philadelphia police. That leaves four purchasers who have gone unaccounted for all these years. Could one of those four be the killer? Or did the killer just find this box after one of those 12 people had disposed of it? The police were able to determine that the specific box the boy was found in had been sent to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which was incredibly close to where the boy had been found. The blanket was also examined. Um, it was found to have been manufactured in either Granby, I think that's how you say it, Granby, Quebec, or Swannanoa, North Carolina. But there was no way to tell where the blanket had actually been purchased from, as the manufacturer sold all over North America. A hat was also found about 15 feet away from the box. It was a blue, kind of like Peaky Blinders style of hat, and it was a size 7 and 1 eighth. But here's the thing. We don't know if that hat actually has anything to do with a murder or if it was just in a vacant lot. A lot of people treated that lot as a dumping ground. It was an illegal dumping ground spot. So we just don't know. Also, I would bet big money that that hat has nothing to do with it because if I was a murderer, and I'm not, but if I was, you'd bet your butt that if I was disposing of a body and my hat fell off in the process, I'd find that hat and I'd put it back on my head. First, because it's probably part of my disguise. And second, because I'd be worried that it could be traced back to me. So yeah, I'm keen to think that the hat is just a red herring, and we should probably stop putting so much focus on it. Nevertheless, in the 50s, they were certain that within the fibers of this hat lay the key to the case. So they tracked down Hannah Robbins, who had made the hat. She said she remembered the man who had purchased the hat because he had had it custom made. She described him as a blonde male between the ages of 25 and 30. <gasps> 
Brian, is it you? (laughs) The man had also requested a leather strap and a buckle to be added. The man paid in cash and she never saw him again. Okay, so remember I told you that the boy in the box was believed to have recently had a haircut. Well, you might be wondering, how could they possibly know that? Well, the boy's haircut was hastily made and was probably done while his body lay dead in the box because the boy had pieces of his own hair clippings in the box with him. Frank Bender, a forensic artist, believed that the boy had actually been raised to believe that he was a girl. So because of that one guy's statement and the 50s being undoubtedly a snooze fest, they latched onto this idea like it was taking off into space and began circulating images of the boy, but with longer hair and dressed as a girl to see if they would get any leads. But shockingly, it didn't lead nowhere. Other than the fact that the boy had gotten a haircut recently, they kind of just glaze over the way that they came to this conclusion that the boy may have been raised as a girl. There's like no breadcrumbs, no, there's like literally nothing as to why they just randomly came up with this decision that he obviously was raised as a girl. But again, the 1950s, who needs evidence to back up claims anyhow? Um, With all the dead ends, it might surprise you to know that there are many theories. Um... But there are, so let's get it, let's get into them. All right, the first theory comes from a couple of authors who were tipped off about a man from Philadelphia who said that he once rented a home to a man who claimed to have sold his son. And he believed that the son could possibly be the boy in the box, which If I was renting a home and a prospective or existing tenant shared such information with me, um, immediate grounds for eviction, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, An expert looked at pictures of the boy to try to come up with a sketch of how the father of the boy might look and agreed that similarities would warrant further testing of that weird dude who claimed that he sold his son. So apparently that dude... um, The police went and talked to him, and he had another son who, for whatever reason, he hadn't sold. The boy in the box and the son had similar ear structures, and I'm not really sure what that means, but what I'm guessing is, is that they probably had some type of, not like a mutation, but just like something that doesn't look like the normal ear. Like, for example, in my head, I'm thinking about my son. He has one ear that's like perfectly round, and then on the other ear, it's a little bit more square on the top. And so I'm wondering if that's kind of what they're talking about, like the similarities in the ear. So a DNA sample was taken from the son who wasn't sold, but the police never disclosed if the DNA had matched the boy in the box or not. So did they test it and it just didn't match and they just didn't bother reporting it? Or did they test it and it did match, but they needed more proof to determine if the father had really killed his son. And so for fear of saying like, hey, it's a match, but we don't have enough evidence against you. Please don't run away. Maybe that's why they never mentioned it again. The second theory floating around originated with Remington Bristow, who was the medical examiner who investigated the case originally, and then he continued to do so for about 37 years. He gathered every article that ever came out about the boy and spent thousands of his own money and countless hours investigating 
the case. He traveled to Arizona and Texas following potential leads and even consulted a psychic who held staples from the box, hoping that it would point them in the right direction. And now is when it gets a little weird. Before, it just seems like really nice, like this medical examiner is just really touched by this case and and he just wants to figure out who did it and he feels terrible that nobody's coming forward to claim this boy. Um, and then he takes it to a psychic, which I mean, that's a little weird, I guess, but I feel like when you're in desperate situations, you'll try about anything. Like I know that I've been there. Um, but this is where it gets a little weird. Um, so he even went so far as making a mold of the boy in the box's face and then turning it into a mask that he carried around with him in his briefcase. I don't know why he would do this. It's a little odd. Like, is he showing people the picture of the boy and being like, have you seen this boy? And they're like, uh, no, sorry, he doesn't look familiar to me. And then he takes out his briefcase and like takes out a 3D mask of the boy's face. He's like, what about now? It just seems weird to me. Rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I was impressed by those first two a little bit. You know, the third thing, the psychic, I was like, oh, okay. But that last one, that's like some Silence of the Lambs-ish right there. Don't really, don't really like it. Um, Bristow theorized that the boy might have died accidentally. Uh, the boy did not seem to have been like neglected or famished or abused. He seemed to have been a very well taken care of little boy. Perhaps the boy's family never came forward because they were afraid that they would be charged with murder. Based on a hunch given to Bristow by the psychic, the article I found said based off a clue that they got from the psychic, but that's an oxymoron to me. So I'm calling it a hunch, but really I could probably just say because the psychic made a informative guess, they investigated a local family who had a history of raising foster children in the area. So the foster family had actually already been interviewed by police. Um, at the family's estate sale years later, Bristow found a bassinet that he believed could have been the, the bassinet that was previ previously stored in the box that the boy had been found in. Bristow continued to theorize that the boy was the illegitimate child of the daughter of the foster family and was perhaps um, abandoned by the daughter to her parents. And they kind of like played it off as if the child was a foster child that they were taking care of. So that way their daughter would not face the, the social criticisms of the day of being a single mother. Bristow passed away before being able to solve the case. Shortly after his death, Tom Augustine, a Philadelphia detective, took up the case where Bristow left off. On February 23rd, 1998, Tom was led to Arthur Nicoletti, who was the former foster home owner. Nicoletti's wife, Anna Marie, was the woman that Bristow had alleged was the mother of the boy in the box. In addition to being Arthur's wife, Anna Marie was also Arthur's former stepdaughter. Yep, you heard me right, and it's all starting to make sense, doesn't it? The wheels are turning. The wheels are turning. Anna Marie's mom and Arthur had been married. 
Could it have been possible that Arthur had fathered a child while sexually assaulting her um, when he when she was his stepdaughter and she had gotten pregnant due to that abuse and acted as if she had gotten pregnant by a boy at school? Um, she had the baby and her mom and stepfather agreed to pass it off as one of just their other foster children. But when the boy reached the age of four to five, perhaps the truth came out. And this led to the boy in the box's demise. Anna Marie did confide to Augustine that she did have a son who passed away in a bizarre fashion. And this is just what Augustine needed. Was it possible Bristow had been onto something? Unfortunately, after further explanation and Bristow checking with the morgue to make sure that Anna Marie's claim was supported... Anna Marie had had a son who had died in bizarre circumstances, um, but he hadn't been beaten to death and placed in a box. Her son had been electrocuted by one of those ponies that you see outside grocery stores. You know, the ones that you put like a quarter in and your kid rides like slowly back and forth. Well, remember, it was the 50s and toys for children were not very safe. Apparently, the cords had been exposed and had gotten wet from being outside in the rain, and her little boy, while riding the horse, became electrocuted. So, this was another lead that led nowhere. The final theory comes from a psychiatrist. So, she contacted Augustine because she was caring for a patient named Martha, and Martha insisted on speaking with the police. Martha claimed that when she was 11 years old, her mother took her to a home and her mother gave a man an envelope filled with money in exchange for a little boy. Martha said that when she was younger, she was sexually abused by her very own mother and her mother had purchased a boy to do the exact same thing to him. She said her mother had beaten the boy to death after struggling to bathe him one night. The mother then drove to Philadelphia to dispose of the boy. Martha spoke to Augustine, Detective McGillan, and Detective William Kelly. Detective McGillan and William Kelly were one of the first detectives on the case way back in the day, and all of them were convinced that Martha was telling the truth. In fact, they even sent over the original case files and Martha's statements, Martha's statements to a retired FBI agent named Bill Flesher, and he, after reading through the case files and reading over her statements, he claims that she has knowledge of the crime that only someone who had been present at the time would know about, as none of that information had been made public, but there was no way to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Also, Martha's mother had passed away so they couldn't even ask her about it or bring her to any semblance of justice if it even was her. I think that this seems like a pretty plausible theory, especially since Martha knew information about the case that had not been made public. Also, is it possible that the first theory and the third theory are connected? The man in the first theory said that he sold his son, and the third theory is about a woman who bought a boy. That would be a wild coincidence. Either way, the true identity of the boy is still unknown. 
He has been buried near Philadelphia um, in kind of like a memorial way. Um, There's a tombstone that reads, America's Unknown Child. To this day, people are mystified as to why no one has come forward to claim him. And I think that that's the most devastating part of this case is like not only did a young, sweet little boy die in such a gruesome way and then was discarded like garbage, nobody came to claim him. And that's what breaks my heart the most about this case. Um, There is no theory or possible reason for this little boy dying that isn't going to be a tragedy. It seems like he lived a short little life. His life ended sadly, his discovery was sad, and the unsolved status of his case is sad. The only thing that gives me hope in thinking it might have simply been an accident is that the boy, from what the medical examiner claims, was treated well before his death. His belly was full, he was clean, his nails were trimmed. This makes me think maybe, maybe it was just an accident and then worried parents were like concerned that they were going to go to jail as if it was a purposeful death and then they covered it up. I'm thinking that this might be kind of like a case of like John Benet Ramsey. I mean, we all know that there's a theory going around there around that her older brother did it. And then out of fear that their surviving child would be taken away from them, um, John Benet's parents came up with this elaborate ransom story to avoid getting in trouble or their son getting into trouble. Could it have been something like that? It's possible. I mean, even though any theory is going to totally suck because in the end, a four to six-year-old boy died. If it was just an accident, then maybe that makes it a little bit easier to process. But I don't know. What do you think? Let me know in the comments on the Mystery Still Unsolved Instagram page. I'd love to hear your thoughts, theories, and opinions about this episode. Thank you for listening and for supporting this podcast. It is greatly appreciated. If you want to know how you can support the podcast more, please follow us on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Check out the website at mysterystillunsolved.com. Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a single episode and tell your true crime loving friends and family all about it. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved? Breaking news, there may be resolution in this case soon enough. Okay, so apparently while I was doing some research, I stumbled upon some a potential lead. So they're actually doing DNA analysis at this very moment to see if it's a match. So I don't have an answer for you definitively, but I wanted to let you guys know before we wrapped up this episode. So Stephen Craig Damon, born December 15th, 1952, was the son of Jerry and Marilyn Damon, and he disappeared along with his sister Pamela on October 31st, 1955, while he was left in a stroller in front of a bakery on Long Island, New York. So if you remember, the boy in the box was found in 1957, and he was already two at the time of his disappearance. So, If the boy in the box is between the ages of four and six, then this would line up because he was two years old at the time of his disappearance and two years later, the boy in the box was found. 
In late November 1955, Damon's family received a ransom note demanding $3,000 for his return. In 2009, John Barnes of Michigan came forward and suspected that he might have been Damon. But in 2009, he was um, he underwent DNA testing, and it turns out that he wasn't him. So then there became like this group of sleuths, just like you and me, who came up to this theory that maybe Stephen Craig Damon was the boy in the box. And apparently it got so much traction that they're actually looking into it. And honestly, you guys, I was looking at the pictures of the boy in the box. They they took some pictures of him after he died, and I'm probably not going to post those, but I will post the sketch of the boy in the box. And when you compare it to Stephen Craig Damon's final picture, the similarities are uncanny. So it really could be him, but I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited to see what the DNA evidence says. Um, and as soon as I find out anything, I will let you know. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. 